0: Well, as Matt mentioned, Tom is away on vacation this morning, and so I have the privilege and honor to lead us through a Bible study in Psalm chapter 22. And so, in the words of our beloved Pastor Tom, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, once you take them out, turn with me to Psalm 22. And while you're turning there, I'll remind you last week we studied Psalm 44, which is a lament psalm. And we learned that psalms of lament in Scripture have their end aim as praise though they journey through this honest grief expressed to God. And it's the same thing in Psalm 22, another psalm of lament, which I realize you say the word lament and immediately your brain goes to sleep and you think, okay, this is going to be a really fun 30 minutes. But uh, that might be the case if we were to share your laments written out uh, before the congregation. But what's interesting and what I hope will be a pleasant surprise to you is as we read the psalms of lament, the psalmist grieves differently than you and I typically do. He grieves with one eye toward his suffering and his despairing, lamentable situation, but he grieves with the other eye toward his certain deliverance. The fact that God will, in the end, in fact, redeem and rescue. And we often miss that second part. We, we tend to look toward our situation and, and lament. But always in these psalms of lament, the end goal is praise, because the end of the story, the deliverance, is what's lasting and the suffering endures for a time. This particular psalm develops literally from an individual who's lonely and in the throes of despair. He's in the proverbial dust of death, all alone. And it ends, it sort of reaches its zenith in this congregation of praise. And he finds himself no longer alone, but in the midst of the congregation of praise and, and singing but this psalm is also prophetic. It's what we call a messianic psalm, which means that David is going to use language that's familiar to prophecy and to his context and time. But the terms that he uses are only specifically and uniquely fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection, as we'll see as we go along. It's the most quoted psalm in the Gospels for that reason. The Gospel writers recognized it more than, as more than David's sort of autobiographical outpouring. It's a, a Holy Spirit-inspired pointer toward the words of Christ who would fulfill them about a thousand years later. So as we turn in our text to Psalm 22, we'll be reading David's words but listening for the voice of Christ and listen also for when the lament turns to praise because that's the part that we really want to grasp today. We really want to understand what what happens there at the, at the instructional, the most climactic moment of the psalm. And so we'll begin our reading in verse 1. This the superscript there that's not written on the screen uh, really ought to be, because it's part of the inspired text. But it says this: it says, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn. And the doe of the dawn is apparently some kind of musical mode or melody. I, I really had hoped that at this moment in our service I could have you all stand and we could sing this entire psalm together to the doe of the dawn, but I couldn't find it on iTunes, and if I can't find it on iTunes, I don't know what to do. <laughs> so you lucked out, but the bottom line is it's uh, the message is that it's a song, just to be sung. It's a psalm of David, it says. He begins like this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalms of lament begin with a direct address of God, and his is profound, because he takes the transcendent, almighty name of God, and he combines it with this personal, possessive my, in a sense, taking the most transcendent being and combining it with the most intimate term, my God. And that perspective of God will be David's anchor of hope throughout his lament, that God is holy, but that he's present with his people. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Understand, when he says why, he isn't demanding of God an explanation. He's calling God to to action in light of who he knows he is. He's been his very present God, and this is a cry of disorientation as that familiar presence is withdrawn. So he says, Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? You're my God. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but I do not, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Again, we have this common poetic technique, this tool that the psalmist uses often called a merism that Tom has spoken about before. The psalmist will call polarities together and in the sense, in that sense, comprehend the whole. He's not saying, I wake up in the morning and I cry and then again around dinner time, I, I cry, it's the whole, the the idea is all the time, ceaselessly, I pour out my heart to you, God, but I find no rest. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I I personally don't find it too hard to relate to David's why. I have felt as though God is not near, as though my prayers fall on deaf ears, as though he has forsaken me. It's his persistence. That's what's convicting. It's I relate well to the why. It's that David persists in his why. He goes on day and night, ceaselessly. I send a cry out for a short season. And then when my prayer isn't answered in the way that I expected, in the time that I expected, to the extent that I had hoped, I lose hope and I, I reach the limits of my faith all too quickly. And instead of pouring out my lament to God, I instead internalize it, But David, he does something radical. He pours out his heart day and night constantly, ceaselessly knowing that he is still God. I think it's a mistake to think of faith as naively obeying orders. You know, David gives us permission here in a sense to wrestle with God's will, to understand, to question, and and to try to speak with God in a way that cries our grief out to him. It's as if some believe that we obey orders from God like we would a drill sergeant and it's like it's, he's God and he gives us commands. command so if you don't like it you swallow hard and well he's God so you do it anyway but scripture more often faith is portrayed as a son learning how to do life from the father who walks alongside him because he's learning to do life and his goal the father's goal is to mature the son into being an obedient son not just that the rules are obeyed, but it's, it's for the maturity of the son. I, uh, last night, had just a beautiful illustration of this. Um, Noah, my son who turns two today, um, I just had to throw it in there. Um, we have a huge birthday party bounce house and everything going on at, at grandma's house, so that's going to be fun. But last night, he decided it would be fun to sit in his little rocking chair And that we have in the living room where he watches his shows, which are like baby Einstein videos. And he decided it'd be fun to turn around in the chair, knees on the, on the seat and sort of chest against the back of the chair and do one of these numbers. And I said to him from across the room, Noah, don't do that. No, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to fall. And that's when it happened. And if you see him today, he has a big gash on his chin, uh, a Mickey mouse bandaid. So that's good. But this, the gas kind of speaks for itself. And when he, when he hit this corner of the toy chest and cut his chin open, I stood up and like any compassionate father, I yelled, I have an illustration. <laughs> and then I picked him up quickly and I, you know, cleaned him up and stitched him back together. And it was 50-50. We were on the fence most of the night and into the morning this morning, whether we should drive him to the hospital. He's fine, really. He's good. Okay, so it might be a lame illustration, but the point is that the father is more concerned that we learn to be obedient sons and daughters than he is that the, that the rules are followed. It's, it's, our perspective needs to change, I think. And David gives us permission to do that. And Jesus is our example, the perfect example of a son who is obedient to his father. And a thousand years later, Jesus would cry this prayer from the cross. In Matthew 27, 46, we read, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice from the cross saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's fulfilling Psalm 22, 1. More than a quote, he's echoing the words of David, but in their fulfillment. See, David felt forsaken by God. No doubt he had a sense of God's abandonment when he wrote those words in Psalm 22. But Jesus was the only one who ever suffered the wrath of God's separation. The epitome of God's wrath consists of his absence, and Jesus took that on in full so that we would never have to. It's been poured out completely on him. I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet, he says in verse 3, and I want to pause right there because that little three-letter word is the biggest, most significant one he's dropped so far. Yet. David has cried out to God in ceaseless agony, you've forsaken me, my God, why are you so far away? Where are you when I need you? And then he drops this word yet that signals there's a shift in his disposition. Something is is giving way, his cries are giving way to confidence in his God. He says, yet all of this agony considered, not pushed aside, anesthetized, or forgotten, but even still in light of it, you, my God, are holy, and you choose to dwell with your people as you are enthroned on the praises of Israel, your covenant people. So though I feel abandoned, though I feel despairing, I know that I know that I know that you are holy and that all your ways, however they may seem and appear to me, are just and true. You are God of the universe, but you have chosen to dwell among us, your people. And so for that reason, I will praise you in order to be numbered among the people who praise you in whose midst you stand. Later, when the psalm finally reaches its, its zenith, its highest point, When the lament turns to praise, David will depict this image of God Enthroned on the praises of Israel, he will sort of explain, verse 3, how it is that God stands in the midst of his praising people. But before we get there, we have a few more lines to go. He's not quite finished shoring up hope in God, and so his confidence list continues. He said, God is holy, God is near, and now he looks to God's past faithfulness and draws confidence from that as well. He says in verse 4, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But let's be clear, all those fathers, you know, the ones that David has said God delivered and never put to shame, they've all died. They've all passed away. Some of them, if we think of our own spiritual fathers in the faith, have been put to death, have been tortured, persecuted simply because of their faith in God. So how is it that David can say that nobody who puts their faith in God will be put to shame? It can only be true. It only makes sense in our context, in our understanding of what Christ has revealed in His Word. It only makes sense in light of the resurrection. The logic of the psalm demands it, that God delivers all who trust in Him in the resurrection, and that's the faith of every true believer. See, in our time, we're so influenced by the prosperity gospel, using quotes there, which says that we ought to expect the comforts of the kingdom now, that we ought to demand deliverance now, that we ought to enjoy the riches of Christ in things of this world. But in a matter of years, all these things will be dust and ash. And Jesus, who comes with us to the true, to speak the true gospel, says this in John chapter 6, Jesus says, this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. He says that of all the people, those who are redeemed, that the Father has given Him, He will lose none. And so if you are in Christ, Jesus has promised that your deliverance is certain, and He will raise you up when He comes again. So you never will be put to shame. And so David is able to say, in you our fathers trusted and were not put to shame, so we too can draw confidence from the knowledge that Christ has never once failed to do what he promised. David goes on to describe his agony, but more significantly he describes the suffering of our Savior. Listen to this detail. In verse 6 of chapter 22 he says, He is scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Isaiah 53 had prophesied that Jesus, the Messiah, would come and be despised and forsaken of men. In verse 8, David says that wicked mockers surround him, and they say in mocking, he trusts in the Lord. Let God deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him, for he delights in him. And we can't help but hear the mocking crowds surrounding Jesus at the cross, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, those who should have known better. Mocking Jesus, saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him if his delight is in him. In verses 12 through 18, we read that those who gloat over him also pierce his hands and feet and then cast lots for his clothing. Does that sound familiar? Some have even argued that David's words describe death by suffocation. He describes sort of, Bones being out of joint and strength being sapped, which some have read to sort of mean that on the cross, as you hang, you die by suffocation, and all of the bones needed for breathing are placed out of joint as you struggle to breathe in this position, hanging by your own, sort of on your own body weight. And then your strength is sapped as you constantly are pushing up against the nails to try to gasp for air. But then in verse 19, his lament finally gives way to petition, which is the next step toward praise. He petitions God and says, But you, O Lord, and he uses the word the name Yahweh for the first time. But you, O Yahweh, my covenant God, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. He describes his mockers as beasts. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then as suddenly as the resurrection, the psalmist finds himself rescued from the assembly of these beastly mockers. And he finds himself instead transported into the congregation of praise. He says, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. We've reached the the goal, the end destination of his psalm, it's toward praise. He's walked through this lament only to say, I will stand in the midst of your congregation, God, and give you praise. But listen to it again through the ears, rather through the voice of Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus. I will tell of your name to these my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Where is Christ? Resurrected, far away, sitting on a throne? Perhaps we could argue so. But there's something missing in our understanding of God and His presence if that is our picture of who God is. We need to understand that He is Almighty, He is on the throne of heaven, and yet He has promised to stand right here in this congregation. He has said that my resurrected Son, Jesus, will stand right here singing praises over you. It's powerful, it should shake us, it should do something. But listen to Hebrews 2 that interprets this psalm for us. It puts these words on the lips of Christ. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. That is why he, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and here it is, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. We have here the inspired interpretation of Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two, placing the words of David explicitly on the lips of the resurrected Christ. And Jesus stands in the midst of our congregation, proclaiming to us the gospel from His Word and singing praises to the Father along with us. It's the Zephaniah 3.17 passage we read earlier, that He is mighty to save and that He stands in our midst, that He's singing over us with loud singing. And listen to who David includes in his vision of the congregation. I'm going to paraphrase for the sake of time. I'm going to pull from various verses through Psalm 22, but later read the chapter on your own if you would. But he says... This congregation includes the sons of Jacob, that is Israel, national Israel, and to extend to all the nations of the earth. The congregation includes those desperately impoverished, he calls them the afflicted, and those who are absurdly wealthy, he calls them, I think it translates literally the fat ones. The idea being that they're wealthy beyond belief. And think of this, the congregation of God includes those who have died and those who are yet to be born in the faith. Think about that. So our true attendance as a congregation includes all nations, all sort of economic situations. It even includes those who have gone before us, and those who are yet to come in the faith. That's who's in attendance whenever we gather for worship. Beyond that, it's who we live and walk, knowing that we are a part of uh, of this congregation. When we come together on Sundays, though, our true attendance surpasses what we see with our eyes, and who does Scripture say is the one voice standing in our midst Declaring praises, leading us in in unified praise to the Father. It's Jesus, our singing Savior. He is the Lord of the universe, but present, enthroned, dwelling with his people. Jesus, who had you on his mind when he went to the cross, and arms outstretched, cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now stands resurrected in our midst, arms outstretched yet again, now unfettered toward you, and says, He sings over us with with this song. He says, Father of those whom you've given me, I will lose none, but I will deliver them on the last day. It's his voice that pleases the Father in our worship, even as it is his righteousness that makes us the people of God. But you may say, well, why is that significant? I mean, I, I sort of knew that God's presence was with us when we worshiped, I hear you guys talk about that, and I sort of have always sensed something in the church, but why does it matter that Jesus stands in our midst? Well, for one thing, it personalizes God's presence in a way that if we were to think of God as this nebulous, far-off, transcendent being out there somewhere, we would, we would miss to take that to the extreme, if that's all who God is in our minds and in our imaginations, the myth that he is far off and distant and transcendent, well, then we will tend to worship him as those who have a religion but not a savior. See, we always worship God according to how we think of him. So if that's how we think, we worship as though he's far off. But if he is near, if he's seated in the seat next to us, Well, it changes things. We will worship Him not as one who has some abstract religion, but as one who has a Savior who is intimately known to us, one who's familiar. For another thing, the knowledge that Jesus is standing in our midst ought to affect certain behaviors. It ought to inspire certain good habits in worship, and it ought to discourage other bad habits. I'll let you fill in all the blanks, but I'll give you just a couple examples so you know what I'm saying. Good practices. You know, we should be here every Sunday well-prepared for worship. It's a good practice. It ought to disallow bad practices, knowing that Christ is in our midst. Knowing that He is standing here ought to bar me from ever assuming myself to be the spectator or worse, the judge of worship. As we said in the fall in our gather series, the question we ought to be asking on our drive home from church on Sundays is not, what did I think of the worship today? The question we should be asking is what did God think of my service of worship? Did I perform my service of worship before Christ in our midst in a way that honors His name and a way that edifies the body of Christ, the church? Lastly, I think the knowledge of Christ singing over us, standing here, ought to affect our unity as a body. And that's a big one. I I think for all the church's attempts to unify the congregation around a musical style, whether it's a traditional church or we split if we don't like that and we go to a contemporary church or if that doesn't work, whatever contemporary means, we finally kind of figure out some blended service in the middle. And and what I'm not saying is that's all wrong and bad and forgive my cynicism, but the point is this, that there is one formula for pleasing the heart of God. One formula for pleasing the heart of God in, wor- in worship, and it's not some perfect balance or a Tr- Aristotelian mean of all the genres that exist in the earth. It's this. The one formula for pleasing the heart of God is the submission of our desires in worship to, the cr- to Christ who stands here. To conform our desires, our will, our passions to His. And what is His passion? What is His desire? Well, it's the contents of your heart. It's, your voice is one thing, but Jesus has said that the overflow of your heart is what your mouth speaks. It's your heart that he's concerned about. So if I stand here in worship despising my neighbor and the way he worships, my heart's not right. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. How much more so when we sing... And the only way we can convey anything of truth to our Father is by the mediator who stands here. His name is Jesus. Thus, the one thing that pleases our God when we worship is the uniting of our voices, which is the overflow of our hearts, with Christ, with the voice of Christ who sings over us. A.W. Tozer gives a great analogy, and I just want to read it to you because he says it so well. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become, quote, unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. What's he saying? Well, the point is this Christ's real presence with us, it unites us with God and it unites us as a consequence with each other. And that's more than pie in the sky. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around exactly what that looks like. But I think we would do well as a church and church capital C, not just Rio Vista, but the church would do well to remember that Christ stands here in our worship and that we are Ultimately, to be conforming our desires to his and not about what I get out of this. If I get my song played, if I get my desire, if Tom preaches from the stool or wears that really rad shirt that he wears or whatever. So we may feel at times alone, but know that you're never forsaken. David, he started his lament feeling as though God had utterly forsaken him. But the truth is that Jesus has borne that wrath completely for us. And as a result of Christ's death and resurrection, he is no longer this God in our minds who is far off and nebulous and unapproachable. But he is God incarnate, Christ Jesus resurrected, standing with us, declaring God's name to us and standing as our mediator to the Father. He ceaselessly sings over us this song, and I'm going to... Close with this. If you'll bow your heads, I'll close in prayer. I'm going to read to you from John. That's a paraphrase of the high priestly prayer where Jesus says this, and this is what he sings over you Father, of these whom you've given to me, I will not lose one, but will raise them up on the last day. Father, may the overflow of our hearts be in unison with your voice this morning. Would you conform our desires? to yours, would you have your way in us, God, make our greatest desire your pleasure and not our own. For in that, God, we know that you in turn will return blessing on our head, that you will indeed cause us to be happier and more fulfilled and, Lord, more, more hopeful in this life as a result of knowing you. And even if that doesn't take the appearance or shape that we had hoped, Lord, we know that in the resurrection, you have given us all the fullness of Christ Jesus. So Lord, in light of that, in light of him who stands in our midst, we worship and adore you this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.